So we're, we're continuing in our series. We're working through 1 Timothy slowly this spring semester. And so uh, last week we looked at how Paul starts talking about order in church and how prayer needs to be like a number one priority in, in, in church service. And so tonight we're going to look at even more of like what does order look like in church? And so we're going to look at how there is an order to things, an order to not only church, but order to just homes and life and, and how that plays out. And so... Uh, this will be an interesting one to study, to say the least. It's one of the, the joys and burdens of what's called expositional preaching and working through this, which we'll see as we work through. So um, as we get started, uh, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine we go to whatever ball game you want it to be. It could be football. It could be baseball or softball. It could be soccer. You name it. Your, your favorite thing. And imagine that we go to this game and, and they're just there's no rules uh, you don't, there's no designated teams. They just wear whatever jersey you want. There's no refs. And you could just do whatever you wanted to. How, how well do you think that's going to go? It's going to real well? Huh? It's going to be chaos. Like, it's going to be terrible. Why, why is it going to be terrible? Because they're breaking the rules. There's, there's, the, but there is no there rules. Okay. Fair enough. So there, there would need to be structure in place. There would need to be some sort of structure because if there's structure, then if there's a designated two teams, if there's refs, if there's rules, if there's let's say just a field, so you know you just stay within these lines. Then ultimately, both teams go, okay, I know what to do now. We know how to play this game. And ultimately, everyone flourishes from that because everyone's like, okay, we know what we're watching. We're doing what we're watching. In many ways, everyone wins in the course of that. Everything plays out perfectly. But if there's not, if there's no structure in place, then it's just absolute chaos in the midst of it. And so there needs to be order in this game and function as it was properly designed. And, and what was he did is that church... As we gather things of that nature, there needs to be order in church. There needs to be structure in church in order for everything to properly flourish and function the way it's supposed to. But here's the thing is all of us in here, we are fallen sinful human beings. And some of us sometimes don't like structure. We don't like order. We don't like, let's say, proper design. We want to do what we ultimately desire. We, we a lot of times might rebel against what the created order that God gives us or design or not want to submit our lives to his lordship and what he commands us to. But what we're going to see tonight in the passage we'll study together is that if we are to lead the way, if we're to lead the way in our lives, lead the way in the faith, lead the way in representing the gospel, then it starts by having order in our churches and submit to the created design and lordship of Jesus. So if we're to lead the way by have, if we're to lead the way in our faith, lead the way in the gospel, then we need to have order in our churches. And we need to submit to the created design and lordship of Jesus. Because as we're going to see, when we do submit ourselves to Christ, we do submit ourselves to his lordship and the way he designed things, even all the way back in Genesis, then we will see not only does humanity as a whole flourish, but the gospel flourishes. And we're able to proclaim the gospel to other people through that. And so that's what we're going to be able to see tonight. So tonight, if you see that, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 tonight. Uh, so if you have your own Bibles, if you want to open up to there. And we're going to look at this together and just break it down and study it together. So let's look at this. This is first, second, or first Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. So this is what it says. This is the word of the Lord. 
I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So let's pray. So Lord, we just come before you and we just need your help. We are fallen sinful human beings in need of your grace. And thankfully enough, you lavish your grace upon us and it overflows. So would you just bless us with your grace and help us as we study this together? Lord, I I confess I I need your help as much as possible in order to properly teach and preach this truth um, with truthfulness, but also with grace and love and humility. So Holy Spirit, would you just purify all of us of our pride, humble us and submit ourselves to your authoritative word? And to what you have to teach us through that, that it's your truth and not my just opinion or anything else. Uh, would you just open up our minds to actually understand and grasp this and open up our eyes to see just the beauty of the gospel and our need for Christ? Uh, would you just open up our hearts to be able to receive this humbly and joyfully? And that in turn, uh, Holy Spirit, you will just help us live out the truths of this. So that in turn, we'll become more of the followers of Christ you've called us to be, more of the family of God you've called us to be, and continually help us strive to make Christ's name known. It's only by your grace and power we can do this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if we're to have order in church, if we're to have order in this, then with this passage, there is at least three things that we are to have in order to have order in church. And the first one is that there must be confession of sins. There must be confession of sins. So again, when we looked, started looking at this last week in verses 1 through 7, Paul started to address the church, and he's starting to talk about the order of service. And so this kind of continues from verse 7 and then leads us into the next part. So in verse 7, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. So Paul declares this, this is directed towards men, but honestly we could direct this towards men and women, that he's declaring that in every place they lift holy hands. So what it means by lifting hands, lifting up hands would be very common at this time. It'd be a common practice of Jewish people, of Christians, of pagans, where they would like lift their hands and palms upward, almost just like a posture of prayer. And so, but what he's saying is you need to lift up holy hands when you pray. And so it's important we understand the holy part of that, that it's not so much about the posture of what you're doing, but it's about the posture of your heart. And so one way we could see this is in Psalm 23 or 24 verses three through four. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So the first part of having holy hands is that we must first become holy. But of course, only Christ is holy. And so we need to repent of our sins and turn to him. And so if we're to lift up holy hands, then first we must confess our sins to God. We need to confess our sins to God. So if we're to lift up holy hands before we can, let's say, do the first part. In verses 1 through 7, we saw how we're to pray for everyone's salvation. We're to pray for, let's say, the governing authorities and how we're to live 
you know, peaceful and quiet, and respectable lives. If we're to do that, then first we need to confess our sins to God first. And so for to lift up holy hands, we need to confess our sins. So before we start praying for the salvation of others, we have to make sure we're living out our salvation and continually doing that and living in repentance of our sins. So let me ask you this. Do you have sins even right now that you know you need to confess to God? Maybe even sins you committed today, committed maybe yesterday or this past week or last week. Maybe before we started praying and before we went into the service, maybe you just... uh, you know, didn't say the best thing to your parents or sibling or friend. Uh, maybe there's just things that you are seeing on your phones you're not supposed to. What are, what are things maybe that you need to confess before God? Because before we start praying for others and praying that they get right with God, we want to make sure that we get right with God first. So we want to start with ourselves by confessing our sins to God. So next, Paul says, okay, lift up holy hands, lifting holy hands. And then the next part, without anger or quarreling. So, these men might have been praying inside the church, but then outside the church, they're getting angry at one another. They're getting in fights with one another, being quarrelsome with one another. So yeah, they might go to church on Sunday and say, yeah, we're going to pray to God and worship him. But then as soon as they leave church, it is just an ugly scene where you, you would not even think that they are Christian because I'm getting angry. Again, it's not about the posture, physical posture, but it's about the motives of their heart in the midst of that. It does not matter. It doesn't matter what the physical posture is of our hearts. We could be on our knees, flat on our face, praying, pouring out our hearts to God. But if, but if it's empty talk and it's not truly the intentions of our hearts or if we're having issues with someone else, then we need to resolve that issue with that person. Because it doesn't matter if we're praying to God, but then we have an issue, let's say, with someone else in church or someone else in our lives that's also a believer. Because, again, we have to confess our sins to God. And one of the things we might do is this next part, we need to confess our sins to one another. We need to confess our sins to one another. Meaning that, that if, there is, if there is a sin that's between, if there's unsettled business between you and another Christian, then you need to settle that. You need to settle that and then go pray to God. In fact, we see this in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount and talks about, let's say, anger. And that if you have anger in your heart for someone, it's the same as committing murder. But then he continues to say this, um, where he talks about, let's say, if you have an issue with a brother, if you're trying to, let's say, make an offering at the altar before God, but you have an issue with a brother, then you literally need to leave that offering at the altar, go to where your brother is, and then make things right, and then go back, and then make your offering before God. So meaning, if you're trying to come, let's say, to this service tonight, and you know that there's an issue with someone else, another Christian, and you know you need to make right with them, then you need to go right. It would be the same as if you literally got up, left service here, went out and made things right with that person, and then came back and continued to worship. So let me ask you this for you to think about. Is there someone right now that's a believer that you have unsettled business with that you need to take care of? Maybe it's something where you disobeyed your parents, like I said, or you badmouthed a sibling or friend today. If so, then you need to settle that with one another. Because here's the thing. The gospel is meant to bring unity and harmony between people. So if the gospel is meant to bring unity and harmony between people of all different backgrounds, if there's still unsettled business between Christians of the church, then that compromises ultimately the gospel that we are trying to preach to other people. It's hard for us to go tell others to be reconciled to God if we're not reconciled to one another. And so that's why we first need to confess our sins first to God and to one another. But then the next part, if we're to have order and service, not only are we to confess our sins, but there must be modest clothing and lifestyle. There must be modest clothing and lifestyle. 
So in verses 9 and 10, Paul now shifts and he's like, all right, now he's going to address the women at the church now of what he's talking to them. And so he says that women must dress modestly with self-control. And so what it says in verse 9, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So just to kind of see a picture of what this would look like at this time, this is kind of what it would look like with braided hair. And so you'd have this braided hair, and a lot of times women might have pearls in there or gold. They might wear really nice fine gold jewelry on top of that and earrings and things like that. They might wear really costly attire, so really expensive clothing. Um, That would just be the finest made of things. And so a lot of times, this also might suggest that the wealthy women, it would whatever you wore at this time, essentially culturally, would show where you were economically speaking. So how you dress reflect a lot of, hey, I'm at this echelon or whatever of society. And so a lot of times wealthy women would wear all this nice expensive things with their hair and jewelry and clothing. And sometimes even their clothing might even suggest they're living immorally outside of that. While poor women obviously wouldn't have the money to have nice clothing or get the nice pearls or jewelry or gold or anything else like that. And so this ultimately would be distracting in the worship service if you just have like, let's say, all this bling and everything else that could be distracting someone from taking place at the gathering. Self-control, this would be just controlling, let's say, our impulses and desires. And a lot of times our natural impulse is that we want to focus on ourselves and point people to us. And so the church is meant to be an equal place for all people in spiritual status because all of us. In spiritual status, we are all sinners before God, and we are in desperate need of grace. Now, again, what I'm not trying to say is that we don't come in and be like, hey, look at these awesome, like, new shoes that I got, or look at this awesome, I don't know, blouse or shirt or hoodie that I got. But it's, what is the intention behind it? Like, what is our motivation behind it? Because, again, this is people of all different backgrounds, and we should all be equal before the cross. And so what we see is this year, that our outward actions reflect our internal intentions. So our outward actions reflect our internal tensions. So what I mean by that is the way we dress and the way we talk and the way we act and the way we interact with people, all that outward stuff is a reflection of our heart and our heart's intent on that. Okay, why are we wearing, let's say, a particular article of clothing? Why are we saying some of the words that we are saying? Why are we doing some of these things? And, and what we're going to see is, is ultimately with these things, I don't want us to see like, okay, we want to dress modestly so that way we don't cause other people, let's say, to stumble. Yes, that's part of it, but we need to look more upward to that and look Godward on that. Instead of, let's say, because when we focus on Godward, everything else will play out from that. In fact, this is a reflection. This passage of 9 and 10 reflects 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, where it says, Do not let your adorning be external. Let's say the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So above everything else, what we should be putting on is a gentle spirit, the righteousness of Christ and living that out. A way for us to understand this today is is just imagine, let's say someone pulled up to our church in just a brand new Bugatti. Like, super nice car, most expensive car in the world. And then on top of that, let's say they walked in here and wearing this bright red Supreme suit. I mean, bright red, it's got Supreme all over, and they're wearing, I don't know, some nice Versace shoes. How distracting would that be if that person just comes in and sits down? Like, 
Like, it, it would be very distracting. But also, let's say in the midst of that, from the other end of it, let's say this person comes in, okay, they're showing off, okay, they definitely have some wealth. Well, what if there was someone in that same congregation who was just struggling to make ends meet? And they're just living paycheck to paycheck. And then they just see this guy come in, rocking all this. That could be potentially distracting to that person. Especially if that person's attention of like, look how much money I got. Look, I got it made in the midst of this. So we're saying we just need to be aware and sensitive to those who are in our church family. We want to be just aware and sensitive to their needs and where they are in life and caring for them and caring for each other's just spiritual states and souls. Because then again, Paul then explains why women and honestly also men should dress with modesty and with self-control. So we see this in verse 10. So it says, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? So godliness just means the character trait marked by proper worship and due reverence for God. So the reason why we should dress modestly, the reason why we should dress with self-control, the reason why we should dress in all these things ultimately is because we have reverence for God. We want to worship God with every aspect of our lives. With our mind, body, souls, with what we say, how we dress, how we talk, how we act. So we want to look Godward. If we seek first the kingdom of God, then all things will be added to this. And then we'll know how we should live out everything else. So we are to pursue godliness, the world is proper, with good works. So our lives should be marked by good works. Our lives should be marked by good works. Because again, we want to be God-focused on this. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. We want to say, no, look what God is doing in our lives. Even when we do good works, we want to say, like, look at how God has saved us. And we want to use this to point people to Christ in the midst of this. Let's say we do disaster relief and we go help people. It's not like, man, look at us. Look at all the things we're doing. It's like, no, no, no. Because we were in disaster and Christ came and saved us from that. And we just want to come and take things that God has blessed us with and help other people who might be in need and care for them in the midst of it. And so... Yes, we, we don't want to dress to cause other people to stumble, if you will, or, or to potentially tempt other people, both men and women. But again, that is ultimately rooted in our desire to worship God with our lives, not just, oh, what will other people think of me? We don't want to just think, what will other people think of me? We want to think, okay, what, what does God think of this? And how does this, is this glorify and honor him? So to have order and service, we want to make sure that we have confessed our sins. We want to make sure we be modest, not only in our clothing, but our lifestyles. So not just what we wear, but also the internal parts of our hearts. And then the last part that we must have is there must be an order of leadership. There must be an order of leadership. Now, <laughs> I will be very honest up front. These next few verses over, over, uh, over the course of time have become more and more controversial. And, and on top of that, I think some people, unfortunately, have taken these to very unhealthy extremes uh, to the point where it is even just unscriptural. What do you mean? And so we'll, we'll see about that as we, we go through this. And, and so I want us to work through this truthfully, but also graciously as we're through this. So in the verses 11 and 12, we see this. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So again, Paul, again, we got to remember Paul's intentions here are for the order of worship and for the flourishing of humanity and reputation in the community. And so we see this truth that God made men and women equal in dignity, but different in roles. So God made men and women equal in dignity, 
but different in roles. So here's where we're going to see how how God established uh, what are meant to be complementary roles between men and women. And so we'll see in Genesis 127, this part. So God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So at the very start, men and women are made with equal dignity, worth, and value before God. And anytime we demean men or women, we are devaluing the image of God and sinning against God himself. But God made men and women to complement one another. And in fact, this complementing of one another is to be a reflection of the gospel in the home and in church. So another passage where this kind of reflects more is in Ephesians 5, 22 through 27. So listen to what this says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is to the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or with any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish." So we see there's a complimentary role where it says women are to submit to their husbands. Women are to submit to, let's say, male leadership that's in the church. So we believe that leadership, let's say the role of pastor or elder, is meant for the role of a man. And so that is supposed to be the spiritual leadership in the church above all that. But again, is that um, as women, let's say, submit, let's say, to their husbands or to the leadership of the church, that does not give the husband or pastor permission to abuse that authority. That does not, because we see, yes, wives submit to your husbands, but at the same time, husbands love your wife as Christ loves the church. And so much so that Christ is willing to die for the church. And so we must see that. Or we're going to see next week in the qualifications for elders and pastors in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, it talks about a man must be self-controlled, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, manage his household well. And so this is the complementing roles that we, we even see this complementing roles reflected in the Trinity, if you will. So if you think about it, the son submits to the will of the father and does the will of the father. And the Holy Spirit submits to the will of Christ to glorify Christ, to help us grow in our relationship with Christ and to draw us to Christ and save us and help us in that. But again, we would never say that Jesus is lesser than God or the Holy Spirit is lesser than Christ. We would say all three, it's one God in three persons. They all, yes, they have their different roles, but they're all equal in value and dignity. So just like with men and women, men and women, they're equal in value and dignity, but they just have different roles that God has established in the midst of that. So this is here, and this is regarding spiritual leadership in the church. So again, we believe that the role of pastor, elder is meant for a man when teaching in front of the gathered church. So we gather on Sunday morning. We believe that time where it's teaching in front of that is meant for a man teaching that. Now, please hear me out. This does not mean that women are less than, nor does that mean women are not gifted in any sort of way. Please do not hear me on that. There's probably many women in this church that could teach laps around me in Bible stories or things of that nature. And and I'm not saying that women do not have the roles of being able to teach and help serve the body of Christ. All of us are gifted with spiritual gifts in order to serve the body of Christ, in order to edify one another and point people to Christ. And in fact, Paul explains several times, even in his own ministry, 
Just the role that women had in many ways. In fact, Timothy, who he's writing to, was raised by his mother and grandmother in the faith because his father was Greek. Paul acknowledges even some women among his fellow co-workers, fellow workers for the gospel, such as Prisca and Aquila in Romans 16, Euodius and Syntyche in Philippians 4. We also see in scripture how older women are to teach younger women to help them grow in that. We see how mothers are to raise their children up in the ways of the Lord and help teach that. In fact, even this time, even rabbinic and Jewish prohibitions, women couldn't even teach small children. But we see in Christianity, we're saying, no, we want women to raise children up in the ways of the Lord because there is such an amazing relationship between a child and their mother. So women are absolutely gifted with spiritual gifts that are being used, again, in service to the church. And we are to all use our spiritual gifts in service to the church, in service to Christ, to glorify and honor him. And ultimately, we do this and we serve in the roles that God gives us. Ultimately, the gospel flourishes in the midst of that. So Paul gives this order of spiritual leadership and the complementary roles of men and women. And then he explains where this order is rooted in. So look what it says in verse 13. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So we see this next truth. Order is rooted in creation. So order is rooted in creation. So Paul is not pulling this out of thin air. Paul is not just making this up. No, Paul is going all the way back to the very beginning when God created the earth. So he's rooting it in the creation story all the way back in Genesis. And so we see this. We see in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Or Genesis 2.22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So we said at the very beginning that that men, yet say, are to lead their households, to love their wives well, to care for that. And women are to help support that and support them in so many ways. And then we also see in this next verse, we also just see the sin that took place and what happened. And so in verse 14, it says this, And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, here's what I want us to understand. It's very easy for us to take this verse and go, ah, see, it's all Eve's fault. If Eve just didn't eat that fruit, then we wouldn't have all this sin and we wouldn't be in this mess. But when we look back at the Genesis story, yes, Eve was deceived. But at the same time, Adam also did not live out his role of caring for his wife, loving his wife and loving the household. And so we see these two truths. First, Adam committed the sin of omission. Adam committed the sin of omission. Omission, the sin of omission means you know what is right and you do not do it. Like you know what's the right thing to do, but you don't do it. So Adam in the creation story could have been like, no, Eve, no, we're not going to eat of this. This serpent is trying to deceive you. He's trying to bring us down this path. We know what God has told us and this is what we need to do. But instead, Adam just stood by. And allow it to happen. And then even partook of this. So Adam did not live out his role that he gave. So Adam committed the sin of omission. See this next one. Eve committed the sin of commission. Eve committed the sin of commission. And so what we see is is that Eve knew what was the right thing to do. That God said you can have any fruit. But do not eat the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so she was deceived by Satan, took it, and then ate of it, and then gave it to Adam, and Adam partook of it too. So she knew it was right, but then committed this sin, the sin of commission. So yes, Eve was deceived by Satan. This by, by persuaded, if you will, that she was deceived, it means that she was perceived in a, or a persuasive manner was she deceived. 
She took the fruit and ate of it. However, Adam was also meant to be the spiritual leader and lead Eve well and said, and should have said no, but he did not. And so he is just as much a part of this as Eve. Yes. Yes, and, we'll, and we can talk about that more after as well. And also, I just want you to mean, when it says that, okay, yes, Eve was deceived by this, I don't want this to mean, well, that means women are just that much more gullible than men. I don't want to think, because men can be just as gullible as women also. It's when we play our roles that we're supposed to. But it says transgressor, that, that she became the transgressor. What transgressor means, it means the act of going beyond or overstepping some moral boundary or limit. So Eve overstepped the boundary that God put in place, both by not eating the fruit of the tree, but also, but also in not helping Adam. And Adam did not stay within the boundary God gave him because, because he did not care for his wife and he did not lead the household well. So even in scripture, we see because we're all born under the curse of Adam. We're all under the born of the curse of Adam and we need the second Adam to come and free us from our sin. So we see the complementary roles and how we live that out and the effects of that when we don't live that out. But then Paul ends it on this. And I think he ends it on a beautiful note as well. Is where it says how women are saved through childbearing. So in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So even though Eve was deceived, we also see this beautiful promise from God in Genesis 3.15. So in Genesis 3 is when we see that the fall happened where sin happened and sin entered into the world. But then in Genesis 3.15, we see what's called the proto-evangelium, essentially meaning the first gospel. So we see the first gospel account, the first time of that, where it says this, where God is now talking to the serpent that deceived Eve. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall, and you shall bruise his heel. And so what God is saying in the end is that God's people is going to triumph over Satan. And we'll talk about, let's say, the seed of woman. Ultimately, that is indicating that the corporate victory that God's people will have. And so we see this last beautiful truth that the curse of sin came through Adam, but the forgiveness of sin came through Eve. So the curse of sin came through Adam, but the forgiveness of sin came through Eve. So yes, Eve was a transgressor and stepped out from that role, from that leadership, and that Adam did not live that out. And because of that, we see the curse of Adam. But then we see that it says they shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so... Even though Eve was deceived, it was through the seed of Eve that eventually the Messiah, Christ, would be born. That eventually through that, we would see Jesus come and who would break the curse of Adam and would free us from our sins. And how beautiful that is. I, 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 want us to, I don't want us to read this verse as, oh, then that must mean just uh, women are just saved if they just give birth to babies. That's not what we're saying. No, because we know that all of us are born under the curse of sin and we all need freedom in Christ. We need to repent and believe in Christ. That's not what this is saying because that would be absolutely unfair to, let's say, women who are celibate or women that cannot give birth. That's not what this is saying. But it's saying that if they will continue through childbearing, ultimately that part, the spiritual sense is that Jesus came through 
came through that, through obviously the line of Eve, if you will, because it was born of a woman because the seed of man was corrupted at that point. So that's why we see the divine conception between the Holy Spirit. But then we also see just another part of that is how, how women can raise their children up in the ways of the Lord as well. Another way that describes children in scripture is a quiver of arrows. And I love that. Uh, Rebecca talked about that, just the quiver of arrows that, that can be used, meaning it's, it's holding all those arrows you can use to fire at Satan, to be able to raise children up in the ways of the Lord that will be raised up in the ways of Christ and to be able to push back the gates of hell in Christ. And so we see the save through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So we've got to continue in pursuing Christ in the midst of that. So now that Jesus is broken, the curse of Adam freed us from our sins, then we are to live in freedom. And we're also, but we're also now trying to pursue the original design that God had in the beginning. That we're trying to pursue that as God originally designed in the beginning. And we were trying to live that out and pursue that out. And here's the thing. When we do that. When we live according to God's design. We live according to how he designed things in the beginning. In church, in homes, in every aspect of our lives. And we submit our lives to the lordship of Jesus. Not only does humanity flourish in the midst of that, but so does the gospel flourish in being proclaimed. Because as we live according to that, as we've seen, then, then we see a picture of the gospel in the midst of that. Through families, through churches, and being able to reach more people for them to be saved. For us to continue to pray for those people and their salvation. So if we're to live according to this design, if we're to live according to this, then I want us to think about this. How are you submitting your life to the order and lordship of Jesus? How are you submitting your life to the order and lordship of Jesus in all aspects of your life? A few more questions to help us get at this more is, is, are you confessing your sins to God and one another? Is there unconfessed sins in your life that you know you need to give over to God and confess to him? Are there sins between you and another believer that you need to settle that business? You need to settle that. Does your heart's desire align with God's desire? So we talked about modest living and and modest lifestyle. And ultimately, that's a reflection of the heart, not just, well, I'll externally do that. No, no. Does your heart's desires align with God's desires and what God commands us in Scripture and what his heart is for us living for him? And lastly, are you just living out the way God created us? How God created a designed, structured order in creation. We live that out, that we're living out the way he originally designed things, which leads to human flourishing, and it leads to the flourishing and proclamation of the gospel. Are you living out the way God created us? So when we do this, we live in this order. When we submit our lives to the order and lordship of Christ, then we'll be able to proclaim the gospel in the midst of all of that. We'll be able to see even more people saved. And that is the goal for us as a church is to advance the gospel and advance God's kingdom. So let's pray. So Lord, we just, we just thank you so much. Um, we, we just thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your lordship. We thank you so much how you have structured everything in, in, in your accordance. It's how it's meant to help all of us live the way you've called us to and, and flourish and, and ultimately to be a reflection of the gospel just through our families and through our churches and through our own personal lives. And Lord, would you help us? Would you help us in those ways? Would you help us just repent of the ways that, that we are not living the way you've called us to? Would you help us confess those sins to you and to one another when we have wronged you and wronged one another? 
Would you help our hearts align with your heart? Would you help us just be modest in our clothing and lifestyle, meaning that we just want to honor and glorify you in everything that we think, say, do, dress, everything. And then lastly, would you just help us live the way that you've created us to and the, and the different roles you've called us to, that we would live that out. Again, ultimately, to glorify and honor you, to point people to the gospel so that other people we pray would be saved. Again, we can do none of this without your grace and just without your power. And we pray all of this in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen.